This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is brought to you in part by Between the Covers, a podcast for listeners, readers, and writers who seek out in-depth conversations about literature and about the questions of craft that arise in the creative process. Past guests have included Zadie Smith, George Saunders, and Ted Chang in fiction, Christina Sharp, Carmen Maria Machado, and Ursula K. Le Guin in nonfiction, and Mary Ruffle, Dory Graham, and Laylee Long Soldier in poetry. Subscribe to Between the Covers with your favorite podcast app or visit the podcast archive at tinhouse.com slash podcast for more information about the show. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we have an interview that we did with Craig Seligman about his book, Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Doris Fish and the Rise of Drag. So one of the things that I loved about this conversation, besides that title being mutually one of our favorites, I think, of the year, perhaps even longer, yes, ever. Um, is that looking back at the incredible career of Doris Fish, who, and now that's a drag queen, I have to admit, I did not know about until reading this book, but seeing the scope of her career and seeing just how many changes have happened with regard to LGBTQ rights and drag culture in just that short amount of time was really impressive. And it's also a wonderful deep dive into the gorgeously glam, but also rough and tumble world of San Francisco and Sydney drag. So that was just super fun. Yeah, and I I think it's as much as drag has been assimilated now into culture, it's also interesting to read this book and reflect on when it was more marginal or, you know, more almost like an antagonistic where it was a way of uh, kind of punk bothering people because it still maintains that power today. And uh, it's become newly controversial and there are states that Mm -hmm. are passing laws that don't allow people to dress outside of their bio assigned gender where it's illegal for like a bio man to wear a dress in certain states at this point. So you can see, wow, maybe certain things about drag have become mainstream, but not not completely. And so I I thought it was especially interesting to read this book at this exact moment when drag is newly controversial yet again. It was just such a wonderful story and Doris Fish is such an inspiration and uh, Craig was wonderful to speak with. And of course, it's Pride Month. So uh, Mm -hmm. topical on that front. Exactly. And this month is also our membership drive month. So as our listeners know, the Los Angeles Review of Books is a reader and our podcast is a listener supported literary nonprofit. So join us this June at lareviewofbooks.org backslash join during our summer membership drive and help us continue the LARB's mission of providing the very best in criticism, poetry, fiction, and more. It's also a particularly good time to join because members who join in June will receive a limited edition LARB hat as well as other perks, including a subscription to the LARB quarterly, 
an LARB Canvas tote bag, a discount card good at our network of partnering indie bookstores, and invitations to our members-only events. Thank you so much. And again, you can join this June to get these perks at lareviewofbooks.org backslash join. I'm so excited about that hat. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> it's the summer months. People like myself, we need yeah. to have those hats. Gotta protect. Um, so while you guys are logging on to join the membership drive, we will now turn to our conversation with Craig Seligman, author of Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Great. We're thrilled to be speaking with the writer Craig Seligman today. He's the author of Sontag and Kale, Opposites Attract Me, which was selected by the New York Times as a notable book of the year and was nominated for the 2004 National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism. From 2006 through 2013, he was the lead book critic for Bloomberg News, and his other writing has appeared often in publications such as The New Yorker, Art Forum, Book Forum, The Three Penny Review, The New Republic, and The Village Voice. He is the recipient of a Guggenheim grant, among other honors, and he joins us today from his home in Brooklyn. He's here to discuss his recent book, which counts among my favorite titles ever, Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Doris Fish and the Rise of Drag. The book follows the story of the groundbreaking drag queen, performer, and artist Doris Fish, who was born in Australia in the early 1950s as Philip Mills. Seligman initially wrote about Fish in the 1980s after they met through his boyfriend in San Francisco. He builds on those interviews to recount Fish's life, from her early days in Sydney, when she was a member of the Outre drag group Sylvia and the Synthetics, to her time living in San Francisco, where she moved in the late 1970s. She formed the group Sluts A Go Go there and went on to become one of the city's most celebrated performers writing and starring in the cult film Vegas in Space, and staging increasingly avant-garde and political performances until her death from AIDS in 1991. In addition to Fish's story, Seligman's book looks at larger attitudes toward drag, both within the queer community and outside of it, elucidating the way drag has seeped into popular culture and why it still remains a radical act today. Thank you so much, Craig, for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Craig, before we get into the substance of this book and talk about Doris's life, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you pulled this book together. You know, you've done an extensive number of interviews. There's also lots of archival research, film research, all of that kind of stuff, diaries. But you're also dealing with a character who I guess we could say is from the margins, right? And in a world that doesn't always lend itself to the kinds of extensive documentation that, you know, say like a president or political figure might. So can you just talk about the process of getting together Doris's story for the book that we have in front of us? I'm happy to, although I think you've largely answered the question yourself. The one thing you left out that I think is really important is Doris's letters. Doris was a voluminous letter writer. We have most of Doris's letters from adolescence on, on record. They're in the collection of Danny Abood in the State Library of New South Wales. And it's a question I keep asking myself, how are future biographers going to work without letters? Email just isn't the same because in a letter, you really talk about what you've done during the past day or week or month in a way that you don't during email. 
And the interviews were intensely important. I mean, they make up really the majority of the book. In in a way, it's almost an oral history. And there was quite a lot of archival research. I mean, is that something that we kind of face when we're telling queer stories? You know, like I've talked a lot with Hugh Ryan, for example, and it is difficult sometimes getting together lives that can sometimes feel filled with ephemeral things or experiences, clubs. Like, you know, in these interviews, how did you kind of bring those spaces and personas to life so that you could kind of get them narratively organized for the biography? Well, fortunately for me, I wasn't writing the history of a person who preceded me. I was writing the history of a contemporary. And many of the shows I wrote about, I was present for, or at least I knew about. So I didn't have to reconstruct a life that had taken place in the early 20th century, as people like Hugh Ryan and Liz Brown have done. I was able to reconstruct a life that I had witnessed and that a lot of other people had witnessed and could tell me about. You knew Doris personally. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that and just there's a description of, should we say, what pronoun? I mean, you kind of go back and forth between her and him in the book. So. Right. We can say either because I say either. When I knew Doris in the 80s, I always said her, but I always said her for practically every gay man I knew and a few straight ones too. That's just how we talked that in that era. Oh, Mary. Pronouns didn't have the valence or the weight that they have today. But when I started to write a book about Doris, I really had to choose my pronouns carefully for a couple of reasons. One is that they matter so much more now. People really care what pronoun you use. And the other is that when I first went to Australia to talk to people, who knew Doris, not only his family, but a lot of his friends referred to him as him. There was nothing trans about Doris, or if there was, let's say it was two or three percent of Doris. So I feel comfortable referring to Doris as he. Doris didn't have sex and drag. He was a, uh, as a sexual being, he was male. And that kind of decided it for me. In addition, Doris had a couple of friends who were most definitely trans, and it was easy to call them she. You say that Doris was, you had never known someone who loved being himself so much. And that description just really struck me. It seemed like such a wonderful way to be in the world. I'll say. (laughs) And also not, you write about this, the kind of your generation of gay men coming out without this, you know, weight of shame and feeling bad feelings about their sexuality that some of your predecessors had. But I also think it's kind of notable to describe someone like this, you know, who is a gay man who is also living a more marginal life who still has this like joie de vivre and confidence and loves themselves. It's really beautiful. So maybe you could just talk about your experience of Doris, you know, in the world and just give us a little background on who he was, where he was from. 
Sure, but I want to make clear now that Doris was not a close friend of mine. I say at the beginning of the book that I was on the periphery of his world, and that's really true. He was a friend of my husband's, Silvana Nova, and he performed together. That's how I knew Doris. And I think Doris certainly liked me. When we would have a cocktail party, Doris would come over. But Doris and I were not, were not best friends or anything close to it. I think it takes remarkable self-confidence to be a drag queen. It takes that kind of self-confidence now, and it certainly took it 40 years ago when people were terrified of drag queens and thought there was something wrong with them. Doris never felt that. He never felt shame or embarrassment about being a drag queen. He never felt shame or embarrassment about being a gay man, and he never felt shame or embarrassment about being a hooker. That's just who he was. Would that we could all be that way. Well, would that some of us could be that way. If we were all that way, the world would probably be impossible to live in. But Doris was a self-confident person from the get-go, and that's what made the birth of the character Doris Fish from Philip Mills possible. It sounds like they had a very, you know, very stable, happy family life in Australia before coming to the States and was an artist and got into drag fairly early in his life. That's all correct. Doris came from a middle-class Catholic family in Sydney, in a suburb of Sydney, which is what they call the neighborhoods of Sydney, called, believe it or not, Manly Vale. We all used to laugh about that. He was one of six siblings. There were two girls, then Doris, then another two boys, then another girl. It was a very close-knit family. And it remained a close-knit family for all of Doris's life. His siblings adored him, adored his drag performances. He performed in drag at both of his brother's 21st birthday parties. And his mother was a very well-known character on the Sydney gay scene. She was usually in the clubs or often in the clubs, at least, where Doris was performing. And at least once was on the Fishmobile a Mardi Gras float that Doris had designed. So Doris came up with the complete support of his family, both as a gay man and as a drag queen. I'm sure that his conservative Catholic father may have winced a little bit, but if he winced, he did it in private, not in front of Doris. I also want to talk about the fact that Doris's life was largely stretched between Sydney and San Francisco at very pivotal moments of change for both of those places, right? San Francisco and Sydney, actually, while Doris is there, are undergoing dramatic transformations that make them both gay meccas in ways that they had not exactly been or were not in the same hyper-visible way before. Can you talk about how those changes across two continents kind of shaped Doris's aesthetic. We'll talk a little bit later about the politics as they are, but also the kind of possibilities for a person like Doris that is at once making the new culture in both of those places, but also produced by it. 
I think you're absolutely right that the two cities changed. But in fact, I would argue that they were both gay meccas long before Doris was on the scene. And part of the reason is the histories of the city. San Francisco really grew up as a result of the gold rush. I think gold was discovered in California in 1848. I hope I've got my date right. In any case, it took until the end of the 19th century for the gender parity in the city to even out. San Francisco was a city of men. And it's not surprising that in a city of men, there should have been a lot of gay sex and in fact, a good deal of drag. The same is true in a different way of Sydney. As we all know, Australia was founded by convicts, largely male convicts. And the population of Sydney was largely male until the end of the 19th century. Though that it does hit, at least in Sydney's case, you know, I'm familiar in another project that I was working on dealt with the gay bashing murders. So there was a much more violent backlash, I think, in Sydney to the kind of like, I guess we could say the afterglow of kind of the liberation years. Well, what I would say is that by the 70s, San Francisco was truly the gay capital of the world. It was a gay mecca. Sydney was not known as a gay mecca, but of course, as the largest city in Australia, it was. And it had been for years, as Doris described it, and as many others have described it, the drag capital of the world. This culture was clearly underground. It was dangerous. It was illegal to be homosexual in those years in Australia. That doesn't mean there weren't a lot of queens running around. And when Doris first came on the scene around the time of Stonewall, he had many role models in drag. He said that the drag queens in Sydney were like Vogue cover models times 10. He called them aggressively glamorous. And that didn't change in Sydney during the 60s, and it still hasn't changed. I was there recently, and I would still call it the drag capital of the world. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how Doris became Doris, one where, you know, she got the name from and what her drag persona initially was. You know, it seems like it shifts a bit over time, but she starts off with this group called Sylvia and the Synthetics performing around Sydney. You also say, you know, that her style of drag was more gender fuck than a traditional drag. So I'm, I'm curious about that distinction as well. Absolutely. This has to do with the change in drag after Stonewall. In the 60s, you had what people in those days called female impersonators. They were people who took the stage, often very talented people who took the stage and who did makeup and attempted to look like women. And that was essentially what their show was. Their show was men pretending to be women and surprising the audience by their womanliness. In the early 70s in San Francisco, you have the Coquettes. And then immediately after in Sydney, you have Sylvia and the Synthetics. And they share an utterly new aesthetic, which was called politely gender bending or less politely gender fuck. It was the era of androgyny. It was the era of David Bowie and Mick Jagger and Lou Reed. And it was the era of questioning the roles into which we had been assigned. And so in both the Coquettes and Sylvia and the Synthetics, you had men and women, but notably men who were putting on frocks, often 
thrift store frocks over unshaved legs and chests. The coquettes were famous for having glitter in their beards. There weren't a lot of beards in Sylvia and the synthetic stores, always disapproved of drag queens with beards. But there was no attempt to hide the gender of the people in the group. And in fact, until the end of his career, Doris never really tried to put himself over as a woman. He always took pride in being a drag queen. He wanted you to see that he was not exactly what he appeared. That, he said, was his way of getting attention. He could pass for a woman, but why do that? That wouldn't get him the attention he wanted. And he always said he had a pathological need for attention. And what were their acts like? I mean, what was happening? It sounds like a real free-for-all on the stage. What was going on? I think free-for-all is a good way to describe it. I never saw the Coquettes perform. I never saw Sylvia and the Synthetics perform. But from what I've read about both groups, they were, let's say, unprofessional. John Waters said watching the Coquettes was an experience you could never have today. It was an experience in which everyone on stage and everyone in the audience was on drugs. That was largely true of Sylvia and the Synthetics too. They loved their mandrax, which is what they called quaaludes in Australia. They would do a lot of them and pass them out to the audience members too, who were also drinking and God knows what else. They would would have kind of rehearsed and they would have some sketches kind of together. They would have some lip sync numbers and some non lip sync numbers, but they were by no means professional. They were the opposite of professional. And that was almost the point that they could get up there and be wild. And it was liberating for them and it was liberating for the audience in a time when liberation was in the air and people felt that they had grown up according to the rules. I kept thinking as I was reading this biography about how Doris, who died in 1991, would have thought of the kind of rise of something like RuPaul's Drag Race, which now is an international global franchise, based in part on some of the kind of madcap aesthetics and specific drag camp humor that Doris so reveled in and loved, would she have ever even imagined that something like that would have been possible? I think the answer is yes. I think Doris always imagined a future for himself in which he could be a glamorous movie star. He joked about it, but I don't think it was a complete joke. He saw a future for drag. He encouraged friends to do drag. He loved doing drag. He saw the popularity of drag blossom in his own era. And though RuPaul surprised everyone, and I think would have surprised Doris too, I don't think he would have allowed that surprise to really show. I think to the popularity of RuPaul today, he would have said, of course, and he would be a regular guest drag queen, I would assume, on RuPaul's Drag All-Stars. The way you say back in the 40 years ago, we could have never imagined that drag would be kind of sweet and commonplace today because people reacted so violently to it at the time, both like the heterosexual world and in some ways, as you explain, also members of the gay world didn't like it. And I'd be curious to hear you say why. But at the same time, you know, in the last couple of years, drag, drag time story hour, all these things have risen 
to, you know, hysterical terror on the right wing and the idea that drag could truly seeing a man in a dress will damage a child. You know, that hysteria that I imagine was very present 40 years ago seems like it's back now more than ever. Absolutely. And I think it speaks to as much as times change, there is still something very subversive about pushing the limits of gender. I'm curious, in Australia, was it illegal if you weren't in a club as a man to be wearing a dress? Like, you could talk about some of the legal technicalities and just the cultural kind of charge of drag at the time when Doris was performing. In the early days of the times when Doris was doing drag, I think it's fair to say that it was illegal to be in drag on the streets in Sydney. Now, I may have my dates slightly wrong. That could have ended in the 60s. I don't know when the laws actually changed. But of course, legal or not, it was something that terrified people. And that's something that Doris and his cohorts especially the friend who Doris always referred to as Miss Abood, Danny Abood, really enjoyed. They enjoyed outraging people when they got on the bus in frocks. They looked at the anger they were garnering and they thought it was a good thing because they intended to push buttons. Doris was a person who who is almost a proselytizer for homosexuality, not in the sense of getting you to be homosexual, but in getting you to accept who he was. And for that reason, I think that his drag was always a bit subversive and drag remains subversive. Gay visibility itself is subversive and drag is the most obvious form of gay visibility. Even though obviously all gay men are not cross-dressers, cross-dressing has long been in the popular imagination associated with homosexuality. And that in itself makes drag a political act and a button-pushing. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Craig Seligman, author of Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have writer, critic, and editor Joanna Biggs on the line with us today. Her new book is called A Life of One's Own, Nine Women Writers Begin Again. And Joanna is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Joanna, what book are you going to recommend? I'd like to recommend Still Born by Guadalupe Nettel, which is translated by Rosalind Harvey. This was a book handed to me by another friend, and I opened it very kind of open-mindedly, not really sure what I was getting into apart from she'd said it was worth reading and it it was one of the first books that made me feel like I did when I first read the Ferrante books it's this kind of clear beautiful prose the structure is similar with um two friends one of them has decided she will never have children and she thought her so other friend decided too but her friend has changed her mind and becomes pregnant and it becomes this kind of opens out in this incredible way to be about a huge argument about what mothering is, what care is, what friends can do to each other, with each other, and is very surprising in its twists and turns and these beautiful kind of clear sentences. So yeah, highly recommend that book. It sounds really good. Joanna, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? It's Still Born by Guadalupe Nettle, and it's in a translation by Rosalind Harvey. 
We've been talking to Joanna Biggs. Her new book is called A Life of One's Own, Nine Women Writers Begins Again. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Craig Seligman, author of Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Could you speak a little bit about why other gay people at the time didn't like drag? Sure. I think the time that we're talking about right now is the mid-70s. Before the mid-70s, drag was really on the periphery of the gay world. I mean, I used to go to see Charles Pierce and his drag club in San Francisco in the early 70s, but nobody really worried about what people would think of Charles Pierce. It was a comedy act. It was a club for insiders. What changed was Stonewall. And now we all know now the importance that drag queen played in the actual event of Stonewall, but their prominence quickly disappeared. And what we saw in the early 70s were gay men and lesbians, those two groups essentially, and I guess bisexuals, marching and claiming their rights more and more insistently. And the idea in that era was we're just like you. We want to show the world that we're just like you. And what we need to do is to come out. We need to show the world that we're as normal as you are. For that reason, a lot of gay politicians, and Harvey Milk was one of them, didn't want people turning out in drag for marches. TV cameras, of course, love drag queens, and they didn't want Mr. and Mrs. America watching the six o'clock news to see a bunch of drag queens at the head of gay marches. They didn't look normal. And the drag queens, of course, had a very clear response to that, which was, how can I say this? Not obscenely. Darn you. We don't care if you think we're not normal. We don't think we're normal either. And we don't want to be normal. What we want is our rights. And if rights are for anybody, then they're for everybody. And that attitude didn't really, I think, completely start to change until the 80s and the era of AIDS, when drag queens really shifted from being pariahs in the gay community to heroes in the gay community when they started appearing at performances at benefits for people with AIDS, visiting people with AIDS in the AIDS wards, and kind of becoming cheerleaders for the gay community. As we're talking about these kind of historical motifs, let's call them, I'm also struck by the cyclicality of acceptance, backlash, acceptance, backlash. You know, there is a long arc of progress in there, to be sure. The rights that gays and lesbians in this country and in Australia enjoy today are very different from the status quo during Doris's time. But I'm wondering how she might have thought about that kind of, you know, push and pull, that kind of cyclicality. Like, did Doris think that there was ever really going to be a time when advances for gays would have been permanent? And I wonder if the vantage point of the drag queen is important here as somebody who is all a perpetual outsider, an outsider that loves being an outsider, that sees perhaps that any advance or any mainstream is always going to be contingent and probably not permanent. You know, kind of how did she think about that push and pull of the tides of gay history? 
Well, let's remember that Doris died in 1991, which was a very dark moment for gay history. I mean, Doris had certainly seen amazing advances in attitudes and in laws from his childhood until his death in 1991. He had seen the election of Harvey Milk and the assassination of Harvey Milk. He had seen the defeat of the Briggs Initiative, but he had also seen in Bowers versus Hardwick, the Supreme Court upholding the right of states to make gay sex a felony. He had seen the terror that gay people were causing among the straight population during the era of AIDS. So I think that's a difficult question to answer. I know enough about Doris to know that Doris was, by his nature, an eternal optimist. And I think his answer would have been an optimistic one. But I think from the evidence around him at the time that he died, it would have to have been a theoretically rather than an objectively optimistic one. Now, for the rest of us, we've seen how Anita Bryant, who looked like a disaster for gay progress, turned out to be a gift to gay people by uniting us all. We've also seen the same thing with AIDS. As terrible as it was, it caused the community to come together and unite. And I think we're seeing the same thing right now. A lot of gay people, I say gay, I should really be saying queer people, are suddenly seeing the necessity of getting up off their ass and making their voices heard. I want to go back to the time when Doris moved to San Francisco got involved with another group called The Tubes. So she was making her living mostly by sex work, but was she performing more and more? Was she getting a bigger name for herself? How did her act change? Where was she heading before her untimely passing? He always put his career first. From the time he arrived in San Francisco, after some initial fooling around sexually and a lot of shopping, he really decided that his that his destiny was to become a star. The first step on the way to that destiny was winning the Tubes Talent Contest in, I believe, 1976, along with the rock singer Pearl E. Gates, who herself became a force on the San Francisco rock scene and was later known, as she is now, as Pearl Harbor. The Tubes were by no means a gay band. They were a, although I think a number of members were gay, they were a very madcap maximalist San Francisco rock band. They originated in Phoenix, came to San Francisco, Francisco, became one of the city's most popular and craziest bands. And not long after Doris arrived in San Francisco, they were putting out a search for talent to appear with them weird talent to appear with them. They wanted to really push the envelope of what was available on stage. And they immediately were impressed by Doris's act because they'd seen drag queens before, but Doris was a very unusual sort of drag queen in the self-confidence and the wit that he presented. Doris was always a really smart and funny and quick person on stage. So Doris and Pearl had their three-week stint at Bimbo's on Columbus Avenue with the tubes, and then Doris very quickly started performing on his own. He put together a group 
called the Sluts A Go Go. That was the name of their first show. And then they decided to call themselves the Sluts A Go Go. The show turned into a show called Blonde Sin with the comic Jane Dornacker. They loved having a six foot woman in the troupe because no one in the audience was really certain who was cis male and who was cis female. And the shows became a kind of underground phenomenon. You had to see them. And Doris went on from there. Doris Fish was a memorable name. The shows were memorable shows. And Doris was always busy. There was always a show going on. By the 80s, he was the city's best known drag queen. And it would be hard to call what he was doing underground anymore. It was certainly for an in-crowd, and it was in nightclubs. But it was written about in the gay press and even in straight press. Beyond Doris's confidence and wit, in terms of look or what kind of material they would do in their act, like if they were lip syncing, if they were singing, you know, can you tell us more about how they presented themselves on stage? Sure. For Doris, theater was certainly for the first 10 years of his career, maybe more. Theater was an excuse for drag. There were a lot of bad jokes and there were songs and lip syncing, but the real point of the shows was the costume changes. There were in, in Blonson, I think, 16 costume changes for each character that had to be done in a ladies' room the size of a telephone booth. Later on, as he performed more and more, the lines got more important, the theatrical aspect got more important, and Doris actually became, by the end of his career, quite an accomplished actor. The last really important piece of theater he did was done at San Francisco's Theater Rhinoceros, in which he played the Queen in a production of Jean Genet's The Balcony, something that the younger Doris could never have foreseen. Amazing. Just one more follow-up. I wanted to ask about romantic cruelism as a kind of philosophy of, you know, maybe both being and performing. What was that? Romantic cruelism was a philosophy that was invented pretty much by Doris's closest friend who has been living as a woman in Paris for the last 40 years. Her name is Jacqueline Hyde one of the great drag names I have ever encountered, but it's now her legal name. And she has always been an intellectual, and it was a kind of glittery version of existentialism that mixed the pessimism of existentialism with the traditional bitchery of drag queenism. It was a way of of accepting and laughing at the cruelty of the world and of never really showing your your true emotions when cruelty was thrust upon you, as obviously it frequently was upon drag queens. They were bitchy to their audience. They were bitchy to one another. And the bitchiness was always, was always a kind of shield. You knew Doris personally, and you were in the same circles that Doris moved in. During the course of kind of, let's say, reporting this book and kind of, you know, remembering and going back through everything, what were the things that surprised you the most or the things that you learned that you had no idea about Doris? Was there anything that kind of changed the way that you understood this person that was a part of your life? 
I wouldn't say changed, but I would say deepened. Doris presented veneer of romantic cruelism to the world. But underneath that veneer, Doris was a deeply kind and a deeply thoughtful and a deeply spiritual person. And that side of Doris comes out very much in his letters to his friends and in particular to his mother. Doris was always thinking. He liked to present himself to the world as a kind of crazy ditzy drag queen. The real Doris was, of course, 100% the opposite of that persona. So Doris realized or finally had it confirmed that she had AIDS and died Shortly after, a year after that, I'm wondering if you, either in, you know, having known her casually or in the research for this book, had a sense of how she lived, you know, the last year of her life, what she imagined her legacy would be, how she was thinking of the work she had done and who she had been, knowing that she was going to die. Well, sad to say, I think Doris did not imagine himself to have had much of a legacy at all. I think he felt that he was cut off in mid-career without truly having affected people in the way that he could have. And I think he was very wrong about that. The movie he left behind, Vegas in Space, a ridiculously bad movie that we were all embarrassed about when it came out, has become an important cult film for young queers and especially for young drag queens who said that growing up in an era when being gay meant dying from sex, it was incredible to come upon a movie that was all about having fun. I feel that way about Doris's shows in general now. I feel that as opposed to what we're seeing from young people now who are facing a very bleak future and are writing shows to go with that future, to project their vision of that future, the shows that we were attending were all about just being crazy and being liberated and having fun. And I'm glad that we were lucky enough to live through an era in which we didn't see the future as being closed off to us. Actually, can you talk a bit more about Vegas and Space? I mean, the production story that you that you tell in the book is so crazy and like just what people would imagine, the kind of Everything done on a shoestring and with spirit gum, you know, like making the sets come together, not knowing how something's going to come together. Can you talk a little bit about both that production history, but also what Doris saw in those type of films? I know you just said that everybody was embarrassed about it when it came out, but what did being in a film mean for somebody like Doris, who, as you said earlier on, had only ever wanted to have as much attention as possible? Well, Vegas in Space really started with a party that went by that name. Doris and his flatmates threw a party after Doris had gone to New York with $1,000 that he'd earned as a hooker. And he had purchased a lot of fun fur and a lot of mylar. And they put it up all around the house. And they painted themselves up with metallic fluorescent paints that Doris had stolen from an earlier job at Florence Broadhurst's wallpaper factory in Australia. 
Australia. They put up a lot of black lights and people did a lot of drugs and the party became legendary. When Doris woke up the next day, he looked around and he said, this decor is too good to waste. Let's make a movie, having no idea at all what went into making a movie. The idea was to make a quick 15-minute movie one afternoon. They got a filmmaker student at San Francisco State University named Philip R. Ford to come in and help them. They had no idea of how complicated setting up the lights and the other mechanics were going to be. They hated every minute of making it. But when the rushes came up and they saw themselves on film, they were transformed. The 15-minute movie turned into a feature-length film. The only famous drag queens that they had to look up to in those days were the uh, superstars from Warhol's Factory. And I think they saw the film as a way of turning them into something even beyond superstardom. You couldn't make a film for what you can make one on today. It was very expensive to buy film stock, to have the sound edited, to do all those things that you can now do on an iPhone and a computer. And the movie wound up going way into the six figures. As Doris said, I learned that you can't make a feature film on a prostitute's salary, even though, as a matter of fact, he did. And the movie that remains has aged rather well. There are a lot of dumb lines in it. There are some longers. But there's also a vision of drag weirdness that is unlike anything any of us has ever seen before. And the one other thing I wanted to add was just that in writing about Doris, I also knew that Doris's life and his career in particular from 1969 to 1991 followed the arc not just of drag history, but of queer history through those years. And it was a way of telling that story and in particular, I wanted to tell that story from the perspective of San Francisco. I feel that the 80s in particular have become a narrative that's told through the incredibly smart antics of ACT UP. But ACT UP isn't the whole story of AIDS. New York was a city with a mayor in the closet who wanted nothing to do with the gay community. San Francisco was a city with a mayor, Diane Feinstein, who told the head of AIDS at San Francisco General Hospital, you write me a check for what you need and I will sign it no matter what the amount is. The politicians, the gay community and the straight community came together in San Francisco in those years in a way that was exemplary, in a way that we'd like to see happening around the country now. And I think that's a part of the story that also needs to be told. It's nice to have a different model than the the, the worst one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hope is possible. Hope is a good thing to have. And I felt like this was a very hopeful book and funny. And speaking of funny, I would be wrong if I didn't ask you about the amazing title. Who does that bitch think she is? I love it so much. One of my favorite titles of a book ever. So where did that title come from? No one knows who came up with the phrase originally, probably Doris. In fact, it was the name of the benefit that was held for Doris before he died and where he performed for the last time before an adoring crowd. I like the title 
because it catches the eye in a bookstore, also because it seems kind of funny. But at the same time, once you know what it refers to, this benefit for Doris, there's an underlayer of sadness because it also refers to the fact that he was dying. And then there's one final meaning, which is that Doris, since he really comprised three separate personas, the artist Philip Mills, the drag queen Doris Fish, and the hunky prostitute known on the phone as Phil. Who did Doris think he was at any one time? I often asked myself. Wonderful. Well, your book does a great service in exploring all those personas and uh, telling us about Doris Fish. Thank you so much, Craig, for being here. That was Craig Seligman. His new book is called Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Doris Fish and the Rise of Drag. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Blotton.